Greetings, podcast listeners. C here, and welcome to this month's episode of the Colorado Review Podcast, in partnership with the Center for Literary Publishing at Colorado State University. Today, we feature a conversation between poet Cynthia Parker O'Henney and editorial assistant Sarah Hughes. Together, they talk about Cynthia's book, Daughters of Harriet, a recent Mountain West poetry series publication. In a wide-ranging discussion, Cynthia and Sarah talk about the legacy of black women, namely Harriet Tubman, how the labor of black women is perceived and performed in the U.S., the meaning of working for others during the pandemic, food's role in poverty across gender and race and class, as well as how our ancestors call on us today to speak in poetry. So I'd like to welcome Cynthia Parker Ohene. Thank you so much for joining us here at the Colorado Review. I have a few questions for you about your book, but before we get into that, would you like to read a piece? So I'm going to read this poem by Lucille Clifton. That's the poem that pretty much informs my life and what I write about. Won't you celebrate with me, which I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with. Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model born in Babylon, both non-white and woman. What did I see to be except myself? I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other hand. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. Thank you so much for that. That's a poem that I hold dear as well. I I love it for its sort of discussing construction of self, organizing and putting oneself together. And to that point, I have a question around the organization of this book. I wonder, how did you go about organizing your poems and what was it like to hold the physical copy of your first book? So I have a quote by Toni Morrison, which I used as my spirit guide for the book. I don't want to make somebody else. I want to make myself. Whatever is burning in me is mine. So for me, this burning is rooted historically in generational and ancestral voices with this genesis in Africa. There is a political knitting together of these ties. Each are part and parcel of the Black female body. Each of the poems are in conversation with the other generationally with a psychological and emotional template. From the slave ship to Iraq, the hospital for the Negro insane, capitalism, and the Black marked female body. The book deals with the joy of being unapologetically and openly Black. I am committed to contextualizing and specifying a myriad of Black experiences and allowing Blackness to exude all its wealth and thrive in spite of. I am most interested in interrupting 
the Eurocentric narrative of Black people, a people unknown even after centuries of living in America. I write about what troubles me, and when I write, I perform this through troubling the voices in the poems in the Kelly women, my mother B, May's daughter, found this strange colored doll, which they attempted to give him friendship. But history taught her different. No, they bared watching from the house up by the road, just in case. So the cover of the book that was done by Megan Fowler is, is, is when, when I saw Harriet Shaw and the way that the book is constructed like an art, I was I was just filled. I, I can't tell you how it, it really represented what I wanted my book to look like. And and seeing Harriet Shaw there was everything. Because I think that when people pick up this book, even though people say you don't judge a book by its cover, but I don't believe that. When you pick up this book, you, you gotta say, Wow, what is in there? And decide to read it. So just handling the book, and I, I just feel so connected and, and, and so proud. We're so happy that we could be a part of this journey for you of editing and proofreading and selecting the cover to make this physical copy possible. It's really amazing. And I love your referencing the, the quote, uh, particularly around making oneself and the book as a sort of making oneself as well. You know, you you build this book of places and people and intergenerational experience. And to that point, I wonder if you can speak to the way that generations move through this book. So the book has different parts. Okay, so then there's Africa, which is, of course, the genesis of Black people. And then my childhood going to Kilmarnock, Virginia, to visit my grandmother, the house that my mother was born in, in Kilmarnock, that I talk about with the three missing steps. And also the, the story about the Kelly women and the Romas who had were on the property. My mother told that story to me as a child. So, so some of these stories are stories that I grew up hearing and I made my mother tell them to me over and over again. I wanted it to be generational because we can't talk about who we are as a person without looking back. We, we got to bring with us our ancestors. I feel that the, the ancestors are the ones that are telling me what to, to speak about. Yes. I'm interested particularly in place in this book, and you often reference specific places for uh, Kilmarnock, which is in Virginia, I believe, um, for example. So I, I wonder if you can tell us about location's role in situating a poem symbolically, culturally, generationally. I think the reason I talk about Kilmarnock a lot is because, of course, my mother was born so the, the, the Kellys and the Currys, who are, who are my family members, have been in this town since slavery. And so I feel that that's important that historically that's 
that's where they're placed and they continue to be there today. Even though my mother had, you know, my, my, uh, my grandmother, my great grandmother and my mother, who I referenced in the book have gone on, but there's still generationally people who still live in that town and people who are still living in the house that my mother was born in. And so I, for instance, when I reference in Girl Black and Kilmarnock, when going to visit my grandmother and the food that she prepared and the bow and arrow that she got me in. And I'm also, it's also some nostalgia about this place and, and how, how this place created how my mother viewed the world. So therefore, that meant that Kilmonic also created how I viewed the world as through my, the way that my mother saw the world. Because, because she came from Kilmonic, therefore, I sort of come from Kilmonic because, because of her and because she raised me according to the values and, and the place that she came from. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm very interested in that point around place informing worldview. And I'm glad you mentioned the food as well, um, because that feels like a very present thread throughout the book. The domestic space, housework, cooking, family. But I hear also in the book a bit of servitude in poems like My Mother, the Lunch Lady, and In Virginia. So I wonder how domestic culture belongs both to the women that you show in your book, but also how it becomes co-opted, sort of as something that's subverted, but also empowering. When I thought about this question, how, how I, I framed it in my mind was that historically, you know, this co-opting of domestic labor has implications for understanding the breadth and scope around the regulation and Black feminization of labor. That's an aspect that I think I return to again and again in my poetry, and that especially co-opted domestic labor was not a livelihood choice, okay? But as exploitation in the industrial complex, which situated Black women at the bottom of the labor hierarchy and its intersection with heteronormative forms of bondage. When I think about the kind of domestic labor that my foremothers had to to do in order to keep the family whole, this is where I come to because we know that traditionally Black women, many Black women had to work in those kind of, do that kind of labor in order to maintain the family. And out of which comes, you know, coming out of slavery and in slavery, many um, certainly my family would be in the fields, but um, certainly there were women who were working in the household for planters. And and also, Kilmonic was, uh, when, when I did some research, a planter community of people like George Washington and presidents like that who had some sort of connection to this area of Kilmonic. I might return back to a point you made a little bit before around the sort of way that we acquire things from past generations. And 
You write in your poem comes the colored hour that home is an impenetrable kiln. I do not want to be contained. I wonder how the lineage that you build in your poem informs perhaps the containment of the present speaker in your book. So in home as well, the impenetrable kiln, right? So this is a self-referential poem. And so, of course, I'm, you know, I have lots of thoughts about mortality. And I, and I was thinking, you know, like how, to me, a, a casket is kind of shaped like a, a guitar. And, um, and how there's all of this, this, these dirges and, and, and flowers and, and gospel and all this at, at the funeral. But what I'm trying to get across is that at the same time, as we're thinking of death, death, life is still going on. And so people are probably at the funeral thinking, as I say in the poem, that, you know, I got these drawers that I got to wash for the week. So I may be at the funeral thinking about that, even though I'm thinking about the daily things that I do in my life at the funeral, because life continues on, even though our beloved has passed on, we're still dealing with, we're still moving on with, with our lives. And that for me was just a, a amusing about, about death and how I view, how I view death. That is just a part of the daily living. Yes. And that feels relevant to the sort of intergenerational work of the, of these poems that there is both life and death sort of right on the edge of each other. Um, that feels important. I do wonder about some of the poems in the second half of the book that move from history's female domestic to a more fraught, perhaps government forsaken present. I wonder how do you reconcile those spaces, those moments and these figures in the book? I think that these poems are about my worldview, about the, the hierarchy of humanity which is also a poem in my book, and that when you talk about, because my book is about Black women, um, for sure, and, and so it represents how one views the presence of the Black female marked body in America. And, and, and so, for example, when we look at today was happening with the nomination of um, Ketanji Brown Jackson and how this, despite all the academic achievements and her, you know, being in the appellate court and her being more qualified than anyone else on that court, that she's still being questioned about her qualifications. It's still this undercurrent of is does she really have the credentials to be on that court? And 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 so I think this is typical of how black women are viewed uh in America. And 
it's emblematic of how black women's labor is um, perceived and performed in this country. And so I, I just wanted to make that, that despite where we come from, from, his, uh, from slavery and history, from slavery to the present, there's still, there's still going to be that, that degradation of, of, the, of, the black, of the black body. Yes. And I, I see that happening often through mothers in the book. I think of the poem Social Worker in Black, where the experience of preparing food um, is something that is both pleasurable in the book, but is also sort of maybe a burden, a form of labor still. And it seems in that poem that this woman has been failed and that they are cast into this class of, as you put it, the permanently poor. Um, I wonder what your thoughts are on the differences between past and present domestic spaces, both in the book and also in Remove from it. So a social worker in Black is about, um, I'm a therapist, and so it's about my experience uh, working um, in a shelter and a woman who had two boys and and when she went away the boys were left in the shelter to fend for themselves and so it had it had to it has to do with what happens to a person when they can't provide when when they are left to figure out how do i provide housing food and healthcare when I don't have access to these provisions. And so that sort of was the impetus for me writing this poem because I feel that the permanent poor is a, is really a factor in this country. That, and it's about how we perceive poor people, especially black, people who are who are poor and so again it's about labor who owns your labor so therefore if i'm if i'm working so during the pandemic folks was, were still expected to work in conditions that would put them at risk for death because of their place in society. So, but I got to provide these services so that others might live, even if that means I don't or my family doesn't. And so I wanted to reference that. I mean, I, I find this um, really problematic. And in terms of food, as you know, the food is 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 in a very important aspect of black life. Food is 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 represents the embodiment of of blackness. It's uh, survival. It's 
is juxtaposed within landscapes of oppression and joy. And food is, is the self and, and communal acceptance. Food is self-acceptance and communal acceptance. If, if we, again, are lacking food because, you know, we have these food deserts or we don't have in the proper income to buy food for our families, then that affects how we how we're perceived in in this um, country, and it also affects how we view ourselves. Because if I can't provide for my family, then of course that's going to affect me psychologically as well as physically. I hope I answered your question. This is what I'm thinking about when I think about um, food, and 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 so when I when I wrote about food in Girl in Kilmarnock. My mother came from a family that had their own farm, so they didn't have to depend on, they depended on their own labor for their food because they had, they grew their own vegetables, they had, they had cows, they had chickens, they had pigs, so they were able to live off their own land and live, and, and, and eat the food that they created. And so, when you don't have access to that, then you're dependent upon the government or other subsidies to help you. Again, if you are in the class of uh, the permanent poor. And I guess, you know, really what I, I'm, I'm talking about a lot of the time is intersectionality, race, class, and gender. That's really what this is. So with food in mind, I wonder, as a therapist, as an activist, as a writer, as a poet, what nourishes you? Well, I, I would say there are several factors. I, of course, my family, my own family uh, is central in my life. I'm an abolitionist, so I'm involved in social justice, you know, mass incarceration, and of course, anti, anti-black anti uh, demonstrations. And so it's important, to, social justice, I would say, is what nourishes me because I would say that that aspect of myself began when I was in middle school and I was reading James Baldwin and Toni Morrison. And, and when I was a student, I was involved in sit-ins. And so that's always been a central part of my life. I don't think that, I, I, can't, I can't conceive of myself without thinking of being an abolitionist or a cultural worker um, within my community. And, and then that's extremely important to me. And I have taught my family to be involved um, in social justice issues as well. That's that's what helps me to to get up every day, believing that. That's why I call this daughters of Harriet. I'm gonna Harriet every day. That's mm -hmm. what nourishes me. I gotta Harriet. Without Harriet Tubman, you know, Harriet Tubman made this possible. You know, she was a conductor. And so therefore, I feel that 
I have to continue that that tradition of being a conductor within my own community because it's still an issue of freedom. It's still an issue of freedom, especially today when we are seeing, um, you know, folks are banning books and can't use the word gay or or um, reproductive justice that affects us tremendously. So gotta Harriet. I got that that's the central part of my life. I gotta Harriet. That's what yeah. I think about when I get up every day. Beautiful. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so we're nearing the end of our time. Um I'd like to ask you not only about what feeds you, but also the books that inform your work. Um what are you reading right now? What would you recommend for others? Okay, so and I really thought about this one a lot too because I'm reading, and I I have picked out some areas of poetry out of the the themes that I'm reading, but I'm reading um, "Bless the Daughter Raised by a Voice in Her Head" by Watson Shire, and I mean, listen to how this is: your daughter's face is a small riot, her hands are a civil war. She has a refugee camp tucked behind each ear. Her body is a body littered with ugly things. But God, doesn't she wear the world well? Okay, and and so that's what I'm reading now. And also to to read alongside my book, which I, I would like folks to read this book alongside mine as well, but um, I really love Nikki Finney. Heads Off and Split is one of my favorite books. And in it, she says, a seamstress brings fabric and thread, collars and hems, buttonholes together. She is one who knows her way around velvet, arching herself over a river of cloth. She feels for the bias but doesn't cut. Not until the straight pins are in place, marking everything in time, everything will come together. And the last one, Perfect Black by Crystal Wilkinson. Sometimes I turn the light on so I can see who their daddies are. Young white boys are like that sometimes, smelling their cells, thinking they can do it because I'm black, because I'm old or just cause. Because I'm a servant of the good Lord is the reason. I ain't never shot one yet. Stunning. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, this is this also um helps me to get up every day too. And we're glad for it. <laughs> um before we close out, uh Cynthia, I wonder if you'd close with a poem. Okay. So I'm going to read all the Bushmen's horses. All the Bushmen's horses. I am too busy looking for food to think about peace. My gun is how I support my family. I watch my neighbors turn to ash as ginger weed on camels tell our teachers. My children black at a school. Days after Arab teachers left before the carnage. Too many horsemen are rattling at the Nuba mountains, 
South is black, enslaved, and infidel, darker cattle keepers, farm workers, domestics, women and children pledge as gifts to Berbers, Lagaras, in our Sudan, land of the blacks. People shout for rain to stop the burn of skin against skin. I did not like protesting, the crouching anger. It is not a recent thing. All the Bushman horses is personal. They force us to have sex with our fathers. The plot where my mother lives burned yesterday. Gunshots and relations. The road out leaves behind fallen home fronts, Aaron livestock. Old men with carts pushing makeshift shipper ropes, charred tires and trash. A wooden chair, a doorknob, a girl's plastic belt, a child's cheaply colored pillow, a shirt turned brown from too much blood and shift. A watery shaped imprint of a shadow spreads the stubbled upholstery of clothes. I carry my mother's sore body. We leave without our voices. We only have stones. They have all the power. No one ever listens to us. Six million cremated. Silence burns fur. Four more years they shout across the Atlantic. Thank you for listening. That was this month's episode. Next time, co-hosts Lilia Schrafer and I come to you from the floor of the 2022 Association of Writing and Writing Programs Conference in Philadelphia, PA.